1: welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. My name is Michael Walker, and I'm here with my co-host and good friend, Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, Walker. How are you? Always good. Glad to hear it. Played a lot of games in the last two weeks. Many games. A lot to talk about.
2: Much games. In point of fact, that is the replacement for the topic this week.
1: The topic is games, 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 games. So many games. Many, many games. Oh, look, more games. But first, we're going to talk about the game we reviewed exactly one year ago, then like we said, the games we played this week, then on to the news and why it doesn't matter, period. Our as yet unnamed retrospective of intro segment the Auras is Trickshot, which it's is a very timely game. Like when I saw it, I said, "This is wow! wait, I don't think we could have timed this any any more appropriately." What serendipity! Trickshot
2: is an amazing game, despite the fact that it is about sports ball. People who enjoy sports ball also enjoy Trickshot. People who do not enjoy sports ball also enjoy it. It's a puck. <laughs> it's all sports ball to me. <laughs> This is designed by Nikita Krylov and Artem Nichiporov. Artem Nichiporov has yet to put out a game that was anything short of delightfully excellent. And right now on GameFound is Trickshot Second Season, which revamps some of the cards and several of the rules. I have not yet played Second Season because I can't fathom the notion of playing on Tabletopia a game I have
1: in real life. That is just not a step I'm willing to take. And we, have, we did play it a little bit, and I didn't find you know, super huge problems with the way it was. Oh, no, I didn't have any
2: problems with the way it was. I mean, I can definitely appreciate some of the streamlining. So some of the different actions were sometimes occasionally cumbersome to remember, like some of the seldom used actions, like certain kinds of long passes. Fighting almost never happened. Apparently, one of the design goals of second season was to make sure that fighting happened more often.
1: (laughs) Uh, It must reflect real
2: life hockey. Which
1: one can respect. Is this where we do the the, the cliche cliche joke? You know, I went, I went to a, a boxing match and a hockey game broke out. Is that?
2: Oh yeah, I think I've heard that joke is, before. Is that where we put this in? Is that, I think we already okay. did. I think All we're right. kind of doomed already to it. Gotcha. So if you already have Trickshot, which is one of the last bastions of pre-painted miniatures, and oh my goodness, the pre-painted miniatures are delightful, then you can get an upgrade pack on Game Town. That is exactly what I have done. I have pledged for the new cards and the new rulebook. Failing that... This is one of those times where, and I, I, this is not me trying to hype up FOMO or indeed be a shill for Wolf Designer, Despite the fact that I love their games. When they say, this is the way to get our games, they mean it. Every time they do a crowdfunding campaign, immediately after the crowdfunding campaign is done, and especially when fulfillment's about to start, people are like, where can I get a copy? And the answer is nowhere, you lost your chance. So if you want the game, you've got to pledge. That is Trick Shot by Nikita Krylov and Artem Nityapurov of Wolf Designer. So, Walker. What did you play last week?
1: Oh, about 5,000 games.
2: Well, why don't you stick start with one of them,
1: and we can work our way up. All right. We got to play Lords of Hellas. We had the old crew back together again, so we decided to break out a classic? <laughs> Ooh. Three whole years. I don't think it's,
2: it's necessary. It is definitely a game that appeals to all of us, and indeed, it appeals to our different preferences in different ways.
1: Yes. So... This is designed by Adam Kapowski and published by Awakened Realms. And what it is is sort of like a robotic Greek mythology troops on a map slash fighting monsters slash area control slash adventure game. Absolutely. We played with uh, a lot of the elements
2: of the Kickstarter exclusives, which is to say the Dark Ages expansion. We played a five-player game. I don't think I'll ever play a five-player game again, because I really don't think that was to its strengths. The downtime was significant. Some of the elements of the expansion served to undercut some of the problems in larger player games. For Specifically, when you play with five players, you always play with Poseidon, who gives you ports. Ports give you another way to influence combats, which is nice, and more importantly, an easier way to move around the map. So you don't really have much of the standard problems of, well, I'd like to go attack them or go access this area of the map, but there's really no way for me to do so because there are three opponents in the way. That part was charming. Didn't address the fundamental downtime problems, though. And let's remember that a way that this game lords of hellas despite the fact that we really really like it there are already elements that cause the tempo to grind to a halt anyway the blessings draft which is great a marvelous gameplay element ruins the tempo monster hunting is fun for the one who's doing the monster hunting and for everyone else they just sit and wait and so with five players i really felt that exacerbated i don't regret having played
1: i enjoyed it but i really don't think it should be played with five I agree. It's very much like a sort of a Sentinels of the Multiverse. Like, I can't believe all of these rules amalgamate together into something that can be played, but they do. So you have, like you said, all sorts of things that are interesting, but they all bog down the game. Like, it's like now all the monsters need to move around the map. So we got to stop and roll the die for all the monsters, and now we got to fight the monsters. I mean, anyway, all sorts of things that just destroy the tempo, unfortunately. But still, those giant god statues, the the fact that the troops are all different. The map's very colorful and interesting. These Miss city miniatures, the temples, even though the blessing draft slows down the game, they are super powerful abilities. That and make really you, fun. Yeah, fun, make you feel that you're different than everyone else. Anyway, Lords of Hellas. And now it is subject to a classic
2: Walker retheming. Open brackets, TM, close brackets.
1: Yeah, we've decided that we're going to because we're so sick of not seeing these giant statues built, like sometimes even in our the game that we just played, not even one statue got completed.
2: Yes. And only one statue got built, even. It it we had one statue get to level four, and all the other
1: statues stayed at level one, which is to say, you know, a little hint of Zeus toe. So now instead we're going to fight the gods and we're going to dismantle the hierarchy so we're going to build all of the statues. Next time we play, we're going to build all of the god statues to full and break them down instead of building them up. That way we get to see the the gods in their in their full forms. Worshippers no
2: longer, we are now iconoclasts seeking to disassemble and reverse engineer the godly technologies. And so now we'll actually get to see these beautiful pieces that we usually get to glimpse during setup when we say, "Oh no, no, you don't get to play with those yet." You get to see some boots. Yeah, a lot of boots. A lot of boots. I'm looking forward to returning to Lords of Hellas with four players and with that additional rule set. I think it'll work out quite nicely. This being said, I do want to play once at six. I want really well just
1: because I have that map,
2: right? I know that's the problem. So you have the neop- you have the neoprene mat, I which I do not recommend. And so yes, there's the six player expansion, and you can only play with Troy if you play with six players. And to a certain extent, it's a bit of a shame that I'm never going to experience Troy, but I just don't, uh, I don't think I could All right, tell you what, the friendship, uh, if you get the people together, I'll do it for you, but, I, I, but I, consider I, it
1: a favor. I am on the same page. <laughs> I, it's going to be uh, hellish. <laughs> but. Uh, no. Uh, no. But uh, I, I want to do it at least once just to say that we, we, we tried it. Well, it's one of those things, right? It's a shame
2: when there are these unique components or unique gameplay elements that seem independently interesting but are gate-kept behind a player count that is not ideal. And in the context of Lords of Hellas, there's the City of Steel expansion, which has this lovely wall miniature, and there's rules related to Troy and all that stuff. And I really like the sort of cybernetic take on Greek mythology as it is, but... uh, And the unique rules related to... Atlantis, which is what you get with the fifth player. They were kind of neat and very simple to apply. You know, not particularly cumbersome on top of, as you say, there are a lot of interlocking rule system in Lords of Hellas. But honestly, I'm a little chagrined at not really wanting to interact with that ever again and and not wanting to do City of Steel. But quite frankly, especially imagine as a first experience, like Lords of Hellas is already a little bit daunting rules-wise. Imagine someone being thrown into a six-player game as their first experience. Oh, my goodness. Well, no, I I just
1: wouldn't do that. I hope that. So that was Lords of Hellas sort of gearing up for their next release, which is...
2: Lords of Ragnarok. Lords of Ragnarok. I broke my rule, Walker. I have a long standing rule, hashtag no tier no sale. There's no, no tear in Lords of Ragnarok. And there was a sale. And there was... I uh, feel I feel so dirty. I feel like I... You're filth. How can you leave out tear, arguably the greatest figure in all... All
1: right, all right, all right, all right, I'm moving on. It'll be an expansion, I'm sure. It's just to lure people back There have
2: in. been no expansions to Lords of Hellas since launch. It's true see. I'm so sad. It makes me shed a single lonely
1: tear. Oh, painful. <laughs> it's like the, even the, the work up to it, I felt it coming.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Lords of Hellas by Adam Kupinski, specifically the Dark Ages expansion. We get to play Hollertau. We talked at Chuck's about the uh, Iurus there was Hollertau, and I commented that I quite missed Hollertau. You know, Uwe Rosenberg Games, the joke is oh, this is the one with worker placement and farming, but there is enough interesting, unique elements I find in almost all of his games, more on that later, to make them worth repeat plays, and I really missed the sort of card play and farming system that Hallertau introduced, and it was delightful. The cards were not my friend at this time. I really wasn't able to get the cards to work properly. Someone else at the table really was, you know, play this card, which gives you some more cards, and then play that card later, and so forth. I, on the other hand, was able to just more effectively focus on the core farming elements. You know, it's one of those games, a lot of Louis Rosenberg games are like this, you have to be reactive to what the cards are telling you, and if if this route seems to offer you too much resistance, just focus on the other avenues and see what you can do, so I got my sheep going, I got my, my flowers going, stuff like that, and... Honestly, although every round ends with a sort of accounting smorgasbord of trying to throw enough meat to move your cooling house over, and enough skins and milk to throw over your manufactory and so on and so forth, it doesn't make me feel like I'm operating a spreadsheet. It actually makes me feel like I'm overcoming a challenging and interesting part of the game, and the worker placement is just tight enough to make me feel like I'm not doing multiplayer solitaire, even though, for the most part, I am. And so I thoroughly enjoyed going back to Hollertau, which I've done several times, it's Probably slightly faster than a lot of his other worker placement games. You know, probably reliably more like 75 to 90 minutes rather than 90 to 120 minutes, and that I also appreciate.
1: What did you think about returning to Howler, Tilewalker? I think I, I I understand that it just really does balance everything out. Like, when you're playing Feast for Odin, the cards are very much on the side. And, yes. And, and pretty well for... Very ancillary. And, and I, don't, I don't want to say so much with Agricola and or Caverna, but you know sometimes the cards don't work out for you or you could you could play you know without the cards it is a big part yes. but but in holler tower it's i think he's brought the focus more on the cards and it's more balanced with the rest of the game it's a good observation i think you're right it's strange how agricola and caverna
2: are so focused on these asymmetric powers but at the same time you could still jettison them that's an interesting aspect of flexibility that I hadn't occurred to, but I agree with you that the, the, the core integration of the cards in Hallertau, like I said, the cards weren't really singing to me. I still played like half a dozen cards at least and made significant profit of it. It's just they paled in comparison to the over a dozen cards that some other people might end up playing over a game of Hallertau. And as I mentioned to Chucks, this is exactly the reason why many people hate Hallertau, because they find the luck of the draw too deterministic, and I'm not in that camp. That is Hollertal by Uwe Rosenberg and Lookout Games.
1: Mark, I played a game called Keep the Heroes Out. I played this game a lot over the past two weeks, and it's because I really enjoy it. This is designed by Luis Brua and published by Brua Games. And this is sort of what they call a dungeon defender, where they reverse the roles like dungeon lords. You're playing the bad guys. You can play kobolds or poltergeists, skeletons, mice, the dragon, Cthulhu. And there are 20 different scenarios you can play. So it's different map layouts. And I like it because it's sort of like a, I don't want to say computer programming, but the the AI for the heroes is nice and sweet and you sort of can manipulate the board and try to set up defenses so they don't overrun your dungeon. And I really enjoy it. There's like new items. It's a sort of, in a way, a deck builder because you can go and you can buy items or potions and they add to your deck and they let you do more actions and it's a game where uh you play all the cards you can and then the enemies will move so you could add more players as many as you like i suppose but the downtime is fairly atrocious i wouldn't play it, -hmm. even with just four it's it's not so good i would play it with three or less even though in the book they say oh yes it can accommodate six players and i really think that is not fair to the game because Mm -hmm. you're not going to have a good experience so it's quite easy the heroes come in They attack if there's any enemies there. If there's no enemies there, they try to open up chests because the chests have, you know, a number on them, one through four. And if there's enough heroes to open them, then... Oh, is that how you open chests? Exactly. Well, you know, they're heavy lids, Mark. You need a certain number of people there to lift the lid. And so if they can't open it, then they... You're trying to get the heroes to exhaust so they don't keep rampaging through your dungeon so killing your minions they exhaust trying to open up chests or opening chests exhaust them and you just don't want them to get to your big chest in the middle which is for manipulating things that way all the scenarios you know add a little different you know thing into it there's a interesting like sort of uh push your luck mechanic where you can send heroes to the cell to draw more cards oh But the special ability of the wizard is if he gets summoned into the cells, then he activates everyone in the cells. So it's sort of like a push-your-luck thing. It's like, well, do I want the cards? Do I want to risk that it's going to be wizard? Stuff like
2: that. But the core gameplay loop consists of the various minion-type monsters playing cards to deploy minions, move minions around, things like that. And kill heroes, yeah. Yeah, I see.
1: Because there's only five of each hero, and if you need to draw a hero that's not available, then all of the heroes of that type will activate plus all the heroes in those in the rooms that they're in. Same thing when they spawn in. If there's any heroes in the room that they spawn in, they also activate. There's also other rules. I won't go into everything, but it's yet another game that I've played solo, which is not very many. Mm. I enjoy it that much. And there are, like I said, so many different monster factions.
2: And honestly, you're burying the lead to a certain extent. The, it's ridiculously adorable. Yeah,
1: it's so cute. Weapons-grade cute. It's Yeah, it's it's blood-from-your-eyes cute. Woof. <laughs> That sounds like a bit of a problem. It's adorable. Let us leave your cards. I will endorse cards leaving in this instance. It's definitely not for all. It's, it's very, I don't know, I found it difficult. Maybe it's not difficult because the ramping up is how many heroes you're going to summon a turn. So it's how many hero cards you're going to draw. And it, it's either going from one to two to three. So you're either doubling the difficulty or tripling <laughs> the difficulty. Right. Right? So it's a very high jump and, and it leads to mostly just customizing it. Right, because, you know, the family game is draw one in the first round and two in the second round. Medium is two and two and then two and three. So usually what I end up doing is drawing one until, you know, I find it too easy. And then even in the first round, then I, you know, start drawing two and then two the whole time.
2: That's a strange intersection. And hearing you and Huey talk about it, I thought that it was somewhat odd. This idea of an incredibly cute, brutally difficult family game.
1: Yeah, I can't wait to show it to you. I really hope you enjoy it because I I wouldn't mind going through a bunch more of the scenarios, and and the different factions definitely play out differently because not only are there a different number of of figures you can have, there's uh, they actually classify them as like sort of support or attack or defense, and the, all their decks play different. Kind of like as though they were heroes in a dungeon crawler, except they're not. Exactly. <laughs> Just so
2: we talked about this on Pledge of Indifference, our award ineligible Patreon exclusive show. And I was so thoroughly charmed by the artwork that when you said that you were getting it on impulse just on the basis of how attractive the components were, I was happy because I knew I'd get to try it. And ridiculously cute kobolds will get me to play a game regardless. The fact that you that you find it enjoyable and it's getting rave reviews, with the minor exception of the downtime, certainly makes me inclined to try it.
1: In the rulebook, you know, it's a little questionable. I, it, I really feel that it is a translation problem with the rulebook. So other than that... Yeah, you mentioned that there was some tr- uh, inconsistent use of terminology. Yeah, other than that, keep the heroes out. Very
2: much enjoying it. We get to play Nusfjord. There was a math trade at Chuck's, and one of the things that I was able to bring back was a copy of Nusfjord. This is an Uwe Rosenberg game, not about farming. This is an Uwe Rosenberg game about fishing. And there are some Uwe Rosenberg games that don't quite hit for me, and despite the fact that they do find an audience, for example, Glass Road is an Uwe Rosenberg I didn't quite enjoy. I thought the action selection mechanism was clever, but I didn't really feel the resource manipulation. Nesfjord kind of is in the same category, although I would also add that the action selection mechanism is not clever. There's this idea of a fundamental stock mechanism about how you sell stock to other people and the dividends are fish. I don't know how stocks work in other areas of the world, but I'm not familiar with a pescatarian stock market. But at any rate... I just didn't feel like there was much to do. At the end of the game, I didn't feel like much had been accomplished. You know, again, it's standard Uber Rosenberg fare. You cut down some forest to get some wood, use the wood to build some buildings, use the leftover wood to try to get some coins, and then you build a ship, and the ship lets you get more fish. But I felt the sort of highly artificial nature of the way the elders work didn't sing for me. So that's one of the ways you can get points during the course of the game. You throw fish at the problem. It's all fish and you get some coins. But the number of fish that are available to be thrown at a problem, and or the number of fish that are available to activate your special powers, which are your elders, kind of fluctuate to me in an unsatisfying way. It's all based on other players' choices, but it's not, I find, in a way that you can really take advantage of. So, for example, Huey desperately wanted there to be a certain amount of fish available to activate one of his elders. Namely, he wanted there to be one available. And to do that, what he did was he unloaded what was at the time a relatively significant amount of fish to make sure that there was enough fish left on the track. But by the time it was his turn again, all the fish had gone. And so yes, this is kind of player interaction, but it's kind of the accidental player interaction that le- that could potentially lead to a certain amount of frustration. And so he just wasn't able to exert his uh, control despite the fact that he had plenty of fish for days. We just, you know, did our thing entirely exogenously, not just to deprive him of the supply, it just happened. So, that in conjunction with, again, this feeling of small ball that at the end of the game, I haven't really done much of consequence, which is a, a sort of vague sense of unease I sometimes get with Euro games where I feel like there's not enough of an arc, not enough sense of development, not even a sense of ramp up. You're doing largely the same thing in turn six that you're doing in turn one. Hollertau ramps up marvelously and marvelously organically just by virtue of the fact that your cards tend to build some lattice work and the fact that the resource costs tend to increase. Increase in an interesting way, but your resource, your ability to offset those costs also increases. But again, those are things that I didn't feel like I had in Nisfjord. So Nisfjord to me is sort of the solid but forgettable tier of Uwe Rosenberg game right there with Raykolt and right there with Glass Road for what it's worth. I'm still a big fan of his work. I'm glad to have tried it, but I don't think I'll be going back to it again.
1: There's a lot of games out there that you have to fight with the systems in order to do what you want. But those games last like two hours this is a very short game and when you're wrestling with those systems and the game's over before you can do anything it gets a little frustrating like you said there was interesting mechanisms there but you had to waste a turn to sort of engage them and and it didn't feel right wasting a turn when the game was so short
2: yeah and the the worker placement is so perfunctory And the action space is so uninteresting. Again, most of the interesting actions are tied in with the manipulation of the market, either of available fish or of available stocks or of the available elders, et cetera, et cetera, glossing over the details because they're not particularly salient. And so the key action loop doesn't really amount to much of consequence or much of anything that I would call interesting. And again, this, this tends to contribute to a sense of blandness. I didn't really feel like I was fighting the system. I just felt like resources were sufficiently scarce that by the time I felt like I could go anywhere the game was mostly over, so I guess we're, we're
1: articulating the same phenomenon in different terms. Yeah, the, mark, the market was like floundering, I think.
2: Oh my goodness. That comment lacked any sense of soul. So, that was Nussfjord by Uwe
1: Rosenberg, published by Lookout Games. Mark, you were nice enough to introduce, introduce us to Santa Maria. This is designed by Ilif Swenson and Christian Amundsen Ostby. So you say. And published by Aporta Games. We've been playing a lot of games by Aporta recently. Well, mostly because we've been playing a lot of games by Alice Svensson and Christian Ammons minospi It's true. And this is a, an older design. That being said, it's not that much older, but it has been. Out for, 2017. 2017. And afterwards, I was thinking, I think I'd just rather play Settlement, right? It's that sort of thing where you are you are building up these lines of actions that you can engage. It's like, okay, well, I've I've built up this line, so next time I run number four, four is gonna be nice and powerful because I've added these tiles. So much like a settlement where you're building this village and you're putting out these buildings and and you get to run lines and they do their thing but i think settlement just gives you a little bit more you know uh, theme than than santa maria did you like you're going out you're fighting monsters you're building your town and it's more of a, i know it's more of a worker placement but at least it gives you a little bit more openings than it's like oh i guess i didn't roll the dice that i needed so i guess i don't get to run my cool lines whereas in in settlement you can run whatever lines you
2: want I still haven't played Settlement, but I agree with you that Santa Maria was solid, and some of the mechanisms were interesting. My key objection, actually, is to the theme. At the end of the day, what you have is a solid resource manipulation euro that is is—it's almost Fisterian in that it acknowledges that it is dealing with an incredible set of atrocities, but at the same time wanting to distance it. There's this bizarre... This is a bit of a digression. There's this bizarre historical leaflet that comes with the game that seeks to very clearly articulate the economic status of the conquistadors. They're like, oh, did you know that most conquistadors didn't actually make any money from their conquests? I'm like, I I did know that. What's the relevance of that? They're like, well, they were more like independent, self-funded entrepreneurs that raped and murdered and enslaved people. It's like, great. That's, I mean... Okay, the economics of awful things is a relevant study of economics, and indeed one can talk about the economics of colonialism and how it wasn't particularly profitable for anyone involved— is that a reason why I should be more comfortable running a plantation in <laughs> as a conquistador? So, I mean, so it's a bizarre, I got the same vibes I get when reading a lot of historical notes from an Alexander Pfister game, suffice to say. But so mechanically, I found it was solid, not necessarily quite as clever as other of Smithson and Christian Amundsen Osby games. Like, for example, if I wanted to do more dice manipulation stuff, I would rather play their own game, The Magnificent, as an example. Very different games, but still about dice manipulation. And the theme of The Magnificent is much less objectionable. I'm glad to have tried Santa Maria. I'm I'm kind of in, in, in the mood where I'd like to track down as many of their games as possible because they're such interesting designers. And that was the spirit in which I tracked down Santa Maria and subjected you to it. And I'm glad to have played it the once, and I would happily play it again if someone suggested it. But as it is, I don't feel the need to go back, especially
1: given the objectionable theme. Yeah, 100%. There, there's some really interesting mechanisms. Like I said, when you when you can run the lines, you 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 run the line, and then the last action of that line becomes exhausted, I guess you could say. And you're running them not only horizontally, but vertically as well. So they're exhausting in two ways than one, and you're like slowly running out of things to do. And I liked how that worked out.
2: Yeah, being able to chain your actions in an efficient way and knowing which actions were scarce, which dice were scarce, what you had to worry about the other players doing, and really wanting to do things in a different order, but feeling that mild pressure from the scarcity of available dice. Now, you can modify the dice, but it's with money, which is a very scarce resource. All of that was really well done. As I say, clever game, interesting aspects of tiling and expanding your board. Would play again, won't necessarily go seek it out. And that was Santa Maria by Alex Fenson and Christian Amundsman Osby, two designers that we're finding increasingly interesting. I get to play a game called Spots. This is a review copy sent to us by the publisher. This was designed by Alex Haig and Justin Vickers, who, along with Wolfgang Warsh, were the people who did Wavelength, one of our favorite party games, as well as the chief designer credited is John Perry, he of Airland and Sea, and Scapegoat. And John Perry is, I think, quickly establishing himself, in my mind, as the king of small box games. Spots is a dice game themed around Dalmatians, as well as a large cow named Doog. At any rate, <laughs> you roll dice, and it's it's weird. The game is trying to pitch itself as an ag- aggressively as a family game, and indeed, the initial rulebook is is this sort of cartoon about how dogs have spots, dice have spots, you roll the dice and you put the dice on the space with the dice. That's the thing. It's the dogs. And it's like, okay, fine, whatever. Is there more? And yes, there is more. There's rather a lot more. And so, I'm not saying that kids couldn't play it, but I'm sort of the, normally when you get the sort of cartoon pitch at the beginning of the game, they might actually explain to you some element of how the game works in substance rather than the most superficial element. of it. It's like, this is a, This is a game called Axis and Allies. Dice have spots. You roll the dice. The dice give you numbers. Like, yeah. All right. <laughs> it's <laughs> that's true. That's, these are all true. Not it's not a <laughs> lie. These, these are accurate statements about the game. At any rate, not that I... Now this is a brilliant example, but you take you take my point. There are these action tiles that are all named after dog-type tricks, and they will tell you to roll certain amounts of dice and or manipulate the, the cards you have in front of you. Basically, the cards out in front of you are cute dogs that are recipes that you need to fulfill. This dog will be satisfied by a one, two, and a six. This dog will be satisfied by two fours and a five, etc., etc., etc. And it's a push-your-luck game because... Most cards allow you to have some degree of flexibility with how many dice you roll. Most actions, rather, have a certain degree of flexibility about how many dice you roll. And, of course, there's the choice about what action you choose to trigger in the, in, in the first case. And if you bust, namely if unallocated dice ever exceed a certain value all the dice you've socked away get removed. And so there's a lovely bit of tension. I do like push-your-luck games, especially when the tension mounts, and there's this idea that subsequent rolls have greater stakes than the early ones, not just an iterative set of the same thing over and over and over again. And the pressure to get things done quickly is, you can score your dogs at any time. You can can set aside a, a dog that has been completed whenever you want, but it's the entirety of your turn, unless you manage to completely fill all your dogs over the course of your turn, in which case they score right away, and you get to just tack it off to the end of the turn. So those simple trade-offs already, and those simple trade-offs, although easy to communicate, were left out of the cartoons, is really what makes the game sing, I think. On top of that, there's a tremendous variety in terms of the different actions available. There's a core recommended first game setup, which I tried, which has the six action tiles. Regrettably, I have not yet had a chance to try the other ones. I am keen to see what you think, Walker. I'm also keen to see how the other actions
1: influence the game. I, I think I got through the rule book now do you flip the action over once you've completed it and now it's not available to the other players
2: Yes, so there are six actions available you choose an available action and flip it over when there's only one action left available you incentivize it with a doggy treat and then all the actions become available again
1: ah I was, I was, I was hoping that there was different actions on the back side that were either like either a little bit better or not so good and then you you had to like battle on which way you know you decide on which one you want, because you didn't want to flip this one back over for other people. No, this the, I think
2: there's still an good. interesting element of choosing the actions, and I think that this is cleaner and still provides an element of, of forced choice. I, I, I don't think that necessarily would have added significantly to the game, but who's to say? Spots. That is Spots by CMYK Games, designed by Alex Haig, John Perry, and Justin Vickers. No designer accreditation on the box,
1: though. Shame on you. We played... A bunch of long shot this week. Long shot the dice game to be more exact. This is designed by Chris Handy and published by Perplexed. And it is a simplified version of Long Shot. You simply are rolling the dice and you're using those dice to modify your board or modify horses, and you're trying to bet on the rice horses on the right horses and get them across the finish line. Played a full six-player game, and when we're finished, everyone had to stop and say how great, you know, everyone very much enjoyed this game. And usually it's like, you know, it's all right, or no one says anything. Everyone was, you know, we need to play this again. I am very much enjoying it. I think it, it just moves very quickly. You simply, you know, play your little roll and write lines and columns or make your horse move faster or place a bet. Everyone gets to do an action at the same time. The dice move, roll them, moves along at a great pace, long shot the dice game.
2: What's strange about Longshot the Dice game is, despite the fact that it is clearly trying to capitalize on both the form factor and marketing push towards roll and writes, it doesn't feel like a roll and write at all. There's one roll and write element, but it's just one ancillary thing off to the side, right? You can use the number rolled to either do something funky with that horse or cross out a section of a grid with that number. And so there's a whole bunch of different kinds of actions you can do, only one of which feels like a roll and write. The rest of it feels a lot more like your traditional Euro style of horse racing game. And I don't mean that as an insult by any way because one of my favorite large player count quick approachable games is Winner's Circle by Reiner Knitzia. And it works. In many ways, similarly, except there you do all the betting and then you move the horses, and the moving of the horses has a little bit more decision-making there. But it does have that immediately approachable, accessible, pleasing element of everyone rooting for the right horse to move, the trash talk, the denigrating horses, the threats of glue, you know, the standard sorts of horse betting talk. I know what it is to bet on the ponies, Walker. I've been there. I I don't know anything about gambling. I'm sorry. I can't keep this up. Anyway, it's just all sports ball to me. It's just all other versions of sports ball. Gambler. (laughs) Hooves, pucks, it's all sports ball. But yes, remarkably enjoyable. And you get to have interesting trade-offs about, dare I say, infrastructure versus payoffs. Because you can try to make sure that you give your horses special powers. You can try to make sure that your horses have additional opportunities to move. And then there, but you only have a certain amount of time to actually place bets because you place your bets during the course of the game. And there's a lot of trade offs involved going on in a very, very simple game of Long Shot the Dice game. It comes in a lovely small box, very inexpensive, very flexible for player counts, and it pleases the entire crowd and is awfully pretty on top of that. I think the Long Shot the Dice game is a real winner,
1: and I think it deserves a, a lot of attention. Yeah, it gets super fun at six because. When we played at four, you know, sure, some people were moving horses back and forth, you know, four times because there's so many players. Like once you cross it off, you don't get to do that. But when you get six people manipulating the horses around, it gets a little silly, but <laughs> but but fun silly. Yes, yes. Oh, well, there's already silliness with four. Yeah. I mean, it, it it's it not no, no, it's not what you would call a yeah. super serious. game. No, no. But I mean, like it it got. It got silly.
2: (laughs) I wasn't there. I can't comment. I'll take your word for it. Yeah, Long Shot the Dice Game, if you enjoy Winner's Circle, as I do, I would thoroughly recommend you give Long Shot the Dice Game a chance. If you're the kind of person who likes racing and betting games involving roll and write, whether it's the sillier stuff like Magical Athlete, or whether it's some of the other horse racing games, Longshot the Dice game comes from a long pedigree of excellent games of that ilk. And I think also in terms of its production value and its very reasonable pricing in a market that is full of bigger and bigger boxes and bigger and bigger dollars, I think there's a lot to recommend Longshot the Dice game. Zoarker, so, third time's the charm. Oathsworn into the Deepwood. Apparently. Once again, into the breach. So Oathsworn into the Deepwood, a review copy sent to us by the publisher, who I would like to point out, here's the thing. Social media is a wonderful thing, Walker. (laughs) And I love being able to talk to some of the other content creators that I respect. And I sometimes like being able to get slightly additional insight from designers, especially if there's things like rules questions or or broader context that we can give to our viewers. Here's something that I don't appreciate that the internet has brought into my life. Apparently now it's a thing that any time I comment that I find a game difficult... I get people crawling out of the woodwork to tell me how easy they find it. I have never, in the history of my life, claimed to be good at games generally. Never! That's not what I claim to be. If anything, by implication, I only claim to be able to offer occasionally some critical insight into games as they position themselves on the market, maybe, at best. At my, on my best day, never have I said, well, you know, I come forward and lay waste to all before me, and so, given that I find this game difficult, it must be monstrously hard. So, naturally... I invite people who find the game easy to contact me and tell me how bad I No. So please stop. Please stop. It's bad enough other the content creators do it. It's bad enough when listeners do it. But here the designer said, oh, I hear you're having problems. Here's a list of rules errors that you're probably making. Because if you're not making these rules errors, you should find this trivial because it's really very easy. No, I wasn't doing any of those rules errors.
1: <laughs> we just found it hard. But we killed the rat. I- <laughs> We finally killed the rat. When I think back, maybe it was my fault, Mark, because now I... Why is that? I, I decided to actually engage with... I actually decided to play the game as opposed to have fun. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and, well, in other campaign Do games, tell. like fighting the monster is fun, like running up and doing your big attacks. So and, you
2: you still don't like the combat system
1: is what I, no, I'm hearing. No, no, no. No, I, that, no, I think it's the opposite. I, I think I respect it more. I think I, okay. think I, I enjoyed engaging with... I need to do optimal attacks all of the time, as opposed to just interesting and fun and giant attack. It's like, well, I'm up, I'm up there now. I have to do my biggest attack, as opposed to no, I got to look at my board and I need to cycle all of these cards. So next turn, okay, I, you know what I mean? It's it's in other games, you know, you're just trying to do the biggest amount of damage every turn you can. Not where- necessarily. I mean.
2: Now, granted, you're playing the Warbearer,
1: so... It's true. <laughs> so I definitely engaged with the card manipulation a lot more in this game that we played. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Yeah, because...
2: So once again, Oathsworn is... You have to compare it to Gloomhaven. It's the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Big fantasy campaign, very much like Gloomhaven. The difference is, and I, I have so much respect for what Oathsworn does... It is by far the campaign game that has done the most to address my concern with campaign games. You can enter at any scenario you want. Play at any player count you want. Yes, you have to have four heroes on the board, but they want to make it as easy as possible for you to swap out different heroes, swap out different players, decide to skip the story element this time. You want to skip the battle this time? Fine. Go straight to the next bit of story. That's okay. You want to do three story bits in a row followed by three fights in a row? You go do that. Chase your bliss. And I have so much respect for how they've done that seamlessly, all the while minimizing paperwork. The combat system, I never really objected to. Huey strongly dislikes it. You disliked it at first. It sounds like you're coming around. I always thought it was pretty good. I'm not a huge fan of having to deal with all the cards all the time. I've abandoned the dice. Although, again, they're like, you want to use cards? Use cards. You want to use dice? Use dice. The dice leave you more open to wild swings of fate, so I've decided to go back to the cards to try to smooth out the experience so people stop telling me to uninstall and kill myself on the internet. And ultimately, it does smooth out the probability curve, as you would imagine, but you know, constantly managing these eight decks of cards and shuffling them around is not ideal. Far too many games, I think, have looked at Gloomhaven's decks of cards and said, well, if they can get away with that many cards, to manipulate, surely I can too. No, <laughs> please stop following that element. And I was reminded after finally killing that stupid rat. There's like two paragraphs of story after killing that stupid rat. I was immediately reminded that I really like the writing. I really like the tone. I really like the overall pr- presentation of the game. I am very curious to see what scenario two looks like because I have been willing to do scenario one three times over. And that's been two pure rat fights with zero elements of the narrative. And mostly, I like the narrative.
1: (laughs) Mark, just because the rat beat us up a lot doesn't mean that it's stupid. Don't be mean to the rat.
2: (laughs) The rat chewed our faces off. I can't be mean to the rat? That's unreasonable. Stupid rat. Yeah, and very much, and again, one of the things I respect about Oathsworn, we have zero idea what we'll be fighting in scenario two. None. Because if you play the miniatures version, it's cordoned off in its own box. If you play the standee version, it's cordoned off in its own envelope. And I had underestimated the extent to which just sorting out the components for Gloomhaven kind of gave me some sense of everything that you could encounter. I mean, yes, the heroes were entirely unknown. Oathsworn, if anything, is the op- the exact opposite. In Gloomhaven, you have a sense of what all the monsters uh, are, but you have no sense what the heroes are. Oathsworn's the exact opposite. You know what the heroes are, but you have no idea what the monsters are. And strangely enough, I kind of prefer that, because you get all the hero choices up front, the ability of all those different protagonists and see, uh, to get to choose between a whole bunch of
1: variety right away, and have no conception about where this story's going. And the ramp-up seems fairly good. I-, I haven't played with the new stuff that we got after the scenario, but I got some new stuff, Mark. You did. There's going to be some every scenario. You get new things, and it's
2: you can jump in at any level you want. If you don't like the level two stuff for the war bear, you want to try somebody else. You can do that. Go back to the bear, whatever. It's it. Yeah. As I say, endless respect for what they've done, and it looks like Huey's not really feeling it. Dewey enjoyed it. I don't know how much more patience we have to, uh, to, to to run through this, especially after the rat took out a lot of enthusiasm from a lot of people, but I can't wait to see what scenario two is like. That's Oath Sworn into the Deepwood by Jamie Jolly and Shadowborn Games. A lot of people have been wondering, you know, is this the big campaign I should get? I don't know. It's hard to tell, right? Like, we're, we're in a wash of so many quality campaigns. Do you want to go back to Gloomhaven? Are you looking forward to Frosthaven? I mean... Did you get through Gloomhaven? Did you? <laughs> like... <laughs> Stop judging people. Like, look, we didn't finish Gloomhaven, but we got enough value out of it. Yes. It it really depends. Like, Oathsworn has prettier components. It's got lovely multi-part miniatures for all the heroes and beautiful huge minis for the bosses. And I prefer the writing but the the core combat system I find less engaging. So it really depends on what you're looking for. Are you a mechanics person, or are you there for the narrative, largely speaking? If it's just about, ooh, I really like this card manipulation, I personally prefer Gloomhaven, and I would say hold off for Frosthaven, or play more Gloomhaven from the the available ones. If, on the other hand, if you've already finished that, or if you didn't like the card play system of that, and and a slightly darker tone appeals to you, I think you can definitely jump into Oathsworn without uh, many regrets. That having been said, if you want to go all
1: into Oathsworn, that's a lot of box. that's oath into the deep wood. mark we returned to the return of the dark tower again and it was just as fun we were we we're gallivanting across the lands we were slaying trolls and and giants we were raising vast armies to sacrifice them to 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 people to let's not say sacrifice let's say waste waste <laughs> And I'm in, I'm continuing to enjoy it. It's not like it's not the greatest game of all all times, but it's it's engaging and it's fun. For me, it's a, a novel gimmick,
2: and playing around with the 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 big fat toy in the middle of the table was the primary appeal, and that lasted for you know about a game and a half. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of clever things that last for me about a game and a half. I didn't find the second play unpleasant. But I didn't feel like the additional novelty of the way the app was working and the way the big toy in the middle was really pulling its weight anymore. And so after playing the first game, I believe my comments were, it's a great toy. I'm not sure it's worth, you know, an excess of 150 bucks, which is what the game actually costs by virtue of the impressive engineering and, and software programming that it represents. And playing the second play definitely confirmed that for me. I don't know that there's enough gameplay variety. We played with different enemies. We played with a different scenario. We played with a different big boss. But at the end of the day, it
1: felt fundamentally identical. Yeah, it was all the same things. Yeah. A quest would pop up and it would be bring X to X and you would do that. It's just the pandemic template over again.
2: Yeah, precisely. It's like pandemic could, if it wanted to introduce a whole bunch of new scenarios. And indeed, to a certain extent, that's what some of the legacy versions of pandemic did. And I would often feel like what we're just doing the same thing over and over and over again. And to its credit, pandemic, core pandemic, the, the core published versions that are not legacy acknowledge the fact that, look, we could dress up scenarios, but why bother? At the end of the day, it's a, a it's about the same. You bring X to Y and there you go. That's how you win the game. I, I'm oversimplifying it to a great degree, but fundamentally that's what's going on. And so y- you can't tell me that every experience is radically different when the first scenario told, told you to bring a bunch of this currency to this location, and the second scenario tells you to bring a bunch of a different currency to a different location. It's the same thing at the end of the day. So I, I agree with you. It's basically just a pandemic with a toy. And the toy's okay. <laughs> the toy's kind of neat. I like the little plastic skulls that you pitch around. But at the end of the day, I'm not a huge fan of app-driven games, and so that alone is reason enough for me to want to go back to the slightly simpler... <laughs> whether not simpler but less baroque shall we say less component laden and certainly more economical cooperative games
1: agreed And if this is this game is put out by restoration games
2: on the topic of restoration and toy factor and games that were initially published decades ago i played car wars sixth edition so this was kickstarted by steve jackson games car wars has been around for a long time mostly fourth edition is what capture the attention of gamers, or at least the the design pedigree that led to fourth, fifth, very much like Space Hulk, Second Edition is the edition that nobody wants to talk about, and Sixth Edition is the new one that that they kickstarted last year. This is designed by Samuel mitski and Randy Schreineman, who did not have any design credits in the previous run of Car Wars products. But very much like the republishing of Ogre, Steve Jackson Games is now trying to mine its back catalog and, and reissue a whole bunch of stuff. This at least has more design work, because o- Ogre is basically a timeless classic of, of Hex counter Wargaming never needs to change, not entirely unlike Space Hulk itself. Whereas Car Wars, everyone who plays it usually has a mountain of house rules and or suggestions about how to streamline things. So I only played a a sort of default, basic, introductory scenario. One car against one car. Last car surviving wins. So I'm not really in a position to comment about how the different modes work or how more advanced cars work. But I can tell you that at its heart, Car Wars does a lot right in terms of simplifying things. Especially insofar as one of its innovations, because whenever you can solve a difficult design problem with toys, I'm in favor of that. In this particular case... A very thorny question with miniatures games of this type, or indeed lots of games in general, is what do you do after a crash? Who's where, and uh, where where's everyone going? Where's what's the final location of things? Well, Car Wars Six Edition solves things very neatly. Every car, large plastic car, is mounted on top of a sort of plastic sled, and it's got a sort of prow in the front. And all that happens is when you move and you crash into a car, you just keep physically pushing your car until the end of its movement, and wherever the other car ends up is where the other car ends up. That's amazing. <laughs> Isn't that great? I heard that. I was like, that is amazing, because... As you well know, I'm a huge fan of Gaslands. Gaslands is an Osprey-published rule set for turning your Hot Wheels uh, cars into wargame components. And the crash rules in Gaslands are eminently satisfying to my sense, but they're desperately unthematic. If you do a head-on collision into something into Gaslands, the collision is, is resolved, and the next turn, you simply act as though that thing isn't there. So if you run headlong into a big shipping container, you're just going to pass through it like some ghost next turn. Works great for gameplay purposes, keeps things fast and moving, and a number of people just cannot get over that. Car Wars 6 Edition for Collision in Cars has that lovely toy solution. Collisions in other contexts have a different solution used by the template, which gets over things like that. Anyway. Getting back to the core gameplay of Car Wars 6th edition, one of the things that I found unsatisfying, though, was the damage system. Cars are substantially more robust in Car Wars 6th edition. Once the armor is gone, what you do is you start pulling cards telling you where the rest of the damage goes. It might go to the pilot, the co-pilot, a weapon. It might go to the tires. It might go to the power plant, etc. But the power plant has 10 points of damage. Your tires have 10 points of damage. You have two crew members each with three points of damage. you get a whole bunch of weapons with two or four points of damage. So, like, there's an endless series of things that can start taking damage. And I really really felt like after the first round, it was mostly just about pulling these damage cards and seeing what got damaged. Did I get lucky? Did I wipe out my opponent's all-important all weapon before he wiped out my all-important weapon? Let's see. And so a lot of it redounded just to that. I don't mind if a game of this nature redounds a lot to luck of something, but it's desperately unsatisfying, I think, when it's not even just the luck of the dice in terms of I hit you or how hard I hit you, but it's the damage location from the same damage location deck over and over and over again. So all the elements about driving a car were fine and functional. But again, one of the key appealing things about a game like Gaslands is just driving your car around, shifting gears, navigating your skid dice, manipulating the templates is very very much part of the enjoyment of the game. It's not just once you introduce shooting at people and racing against other cars. Fundamentally manipulating your car is enjoyable in Gaslands in a way that Car Wars 6 edition doesn't measure up. And so when you add on top of that how cumbersome the damage system is and the fact that managing multiple vehicles isn't as straightforward in Car Wars 6 edition as it is in Gaslands means that I don't think there's any reason to prefer this. To say nothing of the fact that Gaslands is, if anything, one of the most economically... Accessible miniatures games on the market. All you need is some rocks, a cereal box to cut out the templates, some D6 that you know how to turn into custom dice values, and some Hot Wheels from the dollar store. And there you go. You are ready to play one of the best tabletop miniatures games in existence. I was quite shocked, actually, at the uh, the, the sticker price of the starter set for Car Wars Six Edition because it comes with its own custom plastic cars. Why, however, would you want to pay a lot of money for custom molded plastic cars when you can get cars that are fully painted for a buck twenty? Now, granted, they're not all science fiction cars. They don't have the
1: guns molded in them, sure. And the fact that there's two different sets. So if you wanted to play with multiple players, you needed to buy the, you know, there's the orange-green set and the purple-black set. It's true. Or whatever the colors are. And, yes, and the the price tag is ridiculous. I
2: agree. So at the end of the day... I was glad to try Car Wars 6th Edition. It comes from a long pedigree. I like a lot of the things that they've done with the system. And again, they've used toys to solve some of the issues. But honestly, I don't think it's as enjoyable. And I don't, as Gaslands, I don't think some of the key design decisions are as clever as they've been in Gaslands. And uh, basically what I'm saying is everyone should try Gaslands. So that was Car Wars 6th Edition. This episode is brought to you by the spring cleaning champions, Manscaped. This season, make sure to groom your carpets and the drapes with the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch your confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code SoWrongGames for 20% off plus free shipping. Whether you're looking to craft your signature look or clean up that neckline, Manscaped has the right tools for the job. Introducing the season's champ, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, dual LED spotlights, and Sleevers rejoice—it's waterproof and comes with a swank carrying case. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SoWrongGames at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SoWrongGames at Manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants.
1: I returned to Twilight Inscription. It played much the same as 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 the first game. I do see where, you know, when you're done playing a game, if you think back on what you could have done differently or or you, you know, go through the game in your head, then I guess that is something, right? It's a thing, yes. It is a thing. But at the end of the day, you're just much doing the same thing throughout the whole game. There's not much of a buildup. I wish there was more of sort of like a, a you know, a, a grandiose finale type thing, because at the end, you know, you're just crossing out symbols here. Sure, you're going to get a few combos ramping up, but not enough for that length of game, I I don't think.
2: Yeah, it's an interesting counterpoint to Longshot the Dice game, right? Because Longshot the Dice game has a lot of the trappings of the roll and write, and yet it manages to feel like its own thing. Twilight Inscription, despite the fact that in terms of components and rules load, it is miles beyond your average roll-and-write, but at the end of the day still feels like a roll-and-write. It feels like you're playing a game of That's So Clever, or you're like any of the other games where you're just crossing off things in columns and lines except instead now they're War Sons. I mean, okay, fine.
1: Yeah, it's like put, bringing out, you know, six different Roland rights and just playing them all at the same time.
2: Yeah, ex- <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I the, the first sign for me, I because I actually, foolishly enough, foolishly enough, partially because of the designer, James Kniffen, and partially because I thought that a heavily simplified version of Twilight Imperium might actually be enjoyable... I was kind of enthusiastic about giving it a shot. Now, I didn't play in this game that you're talking about. I just played it the one time that we talked about previously on the show. But my first warning sign was when I looked at the technologies and saw how boring they all were. Like, these are not interesting technologies. What have you done? Like, there's so much room in the roll-and-write space, largely. Why is it that games like Longshot are exploring some of
1: those spaces, whereas Twilight Inscription fails to do so? It's, it's quite striking, actually. And that's all I have to say about Twilight Inscription. This is put up by Fantasy Flight Games and is like a giant four-page roll-and-write extravaganza.
2: Play the game of Space Cadets Dice Duel. This is one of my favorite games that I don't get to play very often at all because I often talk about how gaming is a very niche hobby, and within the niche, there are sub-niches. This is a real-time, team-based dice-rolling game that is madcap and frenetic, but at the same time, Not what you would call rules light, (laughs) And so the number of people that are willing to play something like Space Cadets Dice Tool is usually very small, which is a shame because it thrives with at least six players. So you need to find six players that are willing to play a game like this. This time I played, I had a great time. I was playing weapons. Weapons get to manage the targeting systems, some of the defense systems, and the actual weapons themselves. It is one of the more intricate spots to occupy, but I have to say the entire experience was undercut somewhat by the fact that this was possibly one of the worst rules explanations I'd ever heard. Now, some people accuse me of having a big mouth, and that's largely true, but I'm firmly of the opinion that any two people giving a rules explanation will be worse than one person giving a bad rules explanation. So I kept my mouth shut. And just let the, the the incredibly vague and bad rules explanation wash over me. I just kind of sort of knew how it was going to shake out. After the rules explanation was, I'm not going to say done, but terminated... I did offer a couple of gentle nudges so that a couple of the people knew how the game worked at all because they were clearly very dazed by the entire experience. But I knew that without going starting over from scratch and giving a full rules explanation, not everyone was going to be ready for how the game worked. But that's okay. We get to roll dice as fast as we can, and some people will appreciate games like that, and some people will never, ever appreciate a game like that, whether or not they fully understand the rules. Space Cadets Dice Duel is by Jeffrey Engelstein and Sidney Engelstein and is probably my favorite of the Space Cadets games. I don't really like the core Space Cadets Simpliciter, but I like Space Cadets Dice Tool. I also like Space Cadets Away Missions, two excellent and very, very, very different games. And like I say, if that niche, real-time dice rolling, team-based, relatively crunchy nonetheless appeals to you, then Space Cadets Dice Tool may be the game that your group has been looking for. Or it may be that game that you keep on your shelf and wishing that more people would enjoy with you.
1: Mark, I got to play Scooby-Doo the board game we talked earlier about. A pandemic variant, and it's much like all these new horrified games or or Final Girl. It's that type of game where you're going around putting out fires. So this is almost identical. This is put out by Simon, designed by Gamera Gula and Fred Perret, and you play that. You play the the Scooby Gang. They have all of all of the all of the people there. You get to even Scrappy Doo, Mark. You, oh, you, you get. I thought he was very controversial. I, I I'm not sure why. Oh, really? Oh, I suppose, My, I, I guess he comes much later and, and I guess he's not. Yeah, he was not, it was like the not, last
2: season insert that, that divided the fan base. No, I, I think <laughs> I think
1: he's canon, but surprised to hear you use that word voluntarily, Walker. Uh, and so that part was interesting. You know, there was the, the talk, we streamed this as well. We streamed uh, uh, Scooby-Doo the Board Game and Tobago Volcano. Did so, you manage to stay in character the entire time? No. That's a shame. I don't even think I went into character one time. I did I did play I did play Shaggy, okay? And everything was groovy.
2: Well, as Eddie Azard commented, Shaggy is one of the greatest contributions in all of English literature because he's a character devoted to cowardice and sandwiches, and there's something noble about that.
1: It's true. So lots of different monsters. They all do different things. Are they actually monsters though? Well, I suppose not. <laughs> Cuz I
2: Pardon me for all the questions. I'm very curious about when a phenomenally theme-heavy game like this seeks to adapt source material. Because as I recall in Scooby-Doo, there are precisely zero monsters in the entire runtime of the show. Yeah, there's
1: not much text. So there's not like a big oh. story. It's very much like like Horrified. like The monster will move around differently and mm-hmm. put out different tokens.
2: So Old Man Withers in the sheet is not presented as
1: Old Man Withers in a sheet. It's presented as a ghost. I would have to say yes. Okay. Interesting. So they're going around, they're scaring civilians away that you have to repopulate, and you have to go around. <laughs> you have to go around collecting clues. There's like a little side table of these different things you have to.
2: Scooby the Gag are the civilian repopulation crew.
1: Apparently. Oh my goodness. They, they scare them away, and if you know you run out of 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 civilians, then you lose. It's just like I said. It's like pandemic. You're sure you you know you run out of something, then you lose. So bring the people back, bring, make sure. And then, you know, this particular monster we played would block paths and you need to do certain things, fulfill the contracts on the left. Once you've, you've finished all of that, then it had a sort of initiative system that was semi-interesting. You know, you had a hand of cards, you'd put down a number, you'd flip a card for the monster, and then you everyone would go in order. And that, you know, there was a little bit to that. It was sort of like the Gloomhaven I'm going kind of fast this turn. <laughs> so things like that were interesting. They had the big uh, mystery van and you'd actually, it wasn't just a prop or like a, or a first player marker. You'd actually, you know, you know, jump in it and move, fast move. Do the, the figures way. move into the van? No. Oh, that's too They that. do fit on top. But, okay. But yeah, uh, all right, all right. And so you'd drive around because every space was limited to one character. So if the, but if the mystery van was there, you could add more. There's little bits there, but I don't think I would ever return to it. But if your family really enjoys like a horrified type game, and you want a different sort of theme, then Scooby-Doo, the board game, might be for you. It's like fully colored, giant plastic toys, so you can't go wrong.
2: On the topic of idiosyncratic niche team-based games, I also got to play Guards of Atlantis 2 by Artem Nishapurov and Wolf Designer, that was fulfilled this year after a successful Kickstarter. Guards of Atlantis 2 is so good. (laughs) So good. So good. I normally am reluctant to introduce games that are this idiosyncratic to people, but the sheer quality of Guards of Atlantis 2 means that it finds friends in unexpected places. One of the people I played with was someone in our extended group named Asimi, who normally plays Light Euros. That's very much his bag. And I wasn't exactly sure how he would take to it, especially since the way the game shook out was I was playing... Misa, who I initially chose not because she's a badass bird lady samurai, because she has the same name as one of my favorite characters in all of Macross, namely Misa Hayase. Anyway, uh, Misa basically works by killing other heroes. That's more or less what she's good at. And so I knew that over the course of the game, I was going to have to try to, you know, gank a whole bunch of people. And Asimi ended up playing as Brogan the Barbarian, who has very high defense values and very high attack values, but very low initiative. So in other words, he's the simpler one to prey on if you can get the attack values to shake out. His partner, meanwhile, was Golden Arrow, whose initiative values are sky high and she moves all the time. And so it was impossible to pin her down. So right very nearly from the beginning of of round one, I'm like, all right, if we're going to win... It's not going to be through farming minions, because I can't attack very well. It's going to be through murdering Asimi over and over and over again. And that's precisely how we won. And you can tell how well someone's going to respond to the game based on how they react to a session like that. And Asimi was intrigued, despite the fact that he got murdered three times over the course of the game. And... Again, the fact that I I was able to exert that kind of advantage over someone like Brogan is largely due to the fact that I played before, and only one other people, uh, one other person at the table had played before. So, there's going to be a built-in advantage. It's a no-luck, very deterministic game. And again, as I say, very idiosyncratic, so previous play experience matters a lot. And Asimi, despite the fact that he didn't have a whole lot of experience with this, and it's not really his bag, thoroughly enjoyed it. Everyone at the table thoroughly enjoyed it. I was so, so happy to get Guards of Atlantis 2 back on the table. It's a hard sell, again, Again, team-based, looks intimidating, and it is intimidating in a variety of ways, despite the fact that the rules are relatively simple. And you really have to be careful about how to use your cards. But ultimately, the payoff is eminently worth it, and I find that usually the payoff kicks in around round five of your first game, if not sooner. Now, that having been said... Another thing happened in this particular session of Guards of Atlantis that I've seen happen a number of times. There are these these common rules errors that creep up in some games, despite and despite the fact that I know that they are apt to happen, I find myself powerless to step them off the pass. With Guards of Atlantis, this was true of the first edition as well. Leveling up, despite the fact that I find it so simple and straightforward, you pay your current level, and then you level up your lowest tier card. I've more or less explained how it works. People find this baffling, and they start leveling up whatever card they want. They start paying weird and arbitrary amounts of money. I'm like, why did you think it cost that much to level up? And they say, well, because bananas are indexed to the price of petroleum in Sao Paulo, and it's like, uh, 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 you're level five. It costs five to level up again. It's like, oh, all right. I've been very clear about this. Anyhow. So that happened again. I looked over at the table and a level three character had a tier three card played. Like, that's not how that works. You're not supposed to get those for many levels from now. Oh, my goodness. So sometimes it's just a tier level confusion. Wasn't that this case? This was just the thinking,
1: I get to upgrade whatever card I want, right? I just really wanted to go hard on that one card.
2: Yes. At any rate, despite all that. Uh, I really do think that Guards of Atlantis Two is one of the best things published in the past few years. It's it's an amazing accomplishment.
1: Yeah, another reason why, like, because what what you said was past plays really help. But that being said, there are so many different ways that you can, like you said, advance a character. Yes. Different cards that you're going to take, and therefore other cards that are going to give you benefits. Because every advance has two cards, and the one you don't take flips around mm-hmm. and gives a stat bonus of some kind. So there's so di- many characters and so many different ways to to manipulate them. Right. Fantastic. Yeah, m-
2: Misa doesn't really have to be... Uh, a hero killer in the way that I built her. There's a ranged attack that she can get and there are other abilities, but given the fact that the ranged ability wouldn't help me go after new targets given the table setup, I knew, or at least I felt, I'm sure ex- the, the experienced sweaty tryhards on the Guards of Atlantis discourse will be writing out there, k k uh, on, on the chat about how ignorant I am, about how the proper build is this, that, and the other, and they figured it all out by turn one, but whatever. I got the solid impression that I had to do this build in order to take down Brogan in this very specific way and as a consequence I knew that Misa would shake out very very differently if she had been facing other opponents or if she had a different teammate anyhow I could talk for hours about how great Guards of Atlantis 2 is designed by Arsene Nitsapura published by Wolf Designer, highly highly recommended. Lastly for me
1: went back to a game called Chronicles of a Veil this was a review copy from Renegade Studio it is sort of a family weight adventure game where you get a sort of sheet that you're going to put in behind a wooden outline. You can have the children color it. And everything is due with like spatial, you know, your weapons fit into certain spots. You have a backpack. You can only fit in certain things. You're drawing items and stuff in the bag. You have to feel around and try to pull out what you want. And keep in mind, this is something I had not
2: appreciated from your description. These aren't polyominoes. It's not like you're fitting them on a grid or anything. You know, the coins are roughly shaped like coins, but you can only fit as many as will fit into this little depression representing your sack,
1: yeah, it's it's a great, really great little game. And I and that being said, that was a review copy, but I went out and bought the expansion, which is called the Adventurers Toolkit, which adds boots and uh tribuches and more monsters and, and more stuff. There's another big expansion coming out this year called uh New Adventures. So there'll be even more monsters, more stuff. And it's just an enjoyable game to play. It's it's very streamlined. No, you know, weird wonky things. It's, it's cooperative. You sort of try to get monsters flipped up because you want to upgrade your weapons because they're much more powerful. So you're trying to help your teammates and you don't want to have all your eggs in one basket. Stuff like that. Lots of interesting things going on. Chronicles of a Veil. Finally for me, I got to return to what I think is my favorite recent
2: dexterity game, and that is Crash Octopus, designed by Naotaka Shimamoto, published by Itten. It has such an adorable table presence, because you get to see all the octopus tentacles, and the octopus itself is represented by just a pink hemisphere. That's it. But what else do you need? What else would a giant octopus look like when rendered in wooden components? Fabulous. You're flicking treasure around, trying to catch treasure, trying to move your boat. I'm mooting a house rule, which is kind of in the gestation period in my head to allow more movement, because as a general rule in a game of Crash Octopus, you don't move around much. Most of the time you're flicking treasure. More on this to follow as I get a chance to try it out. But it's utterly delightful, flinging dice to try to knock people's ships over, attacking with an octopus... Utterly delightful game in a beautiful and cute small box. Very, very Japanese in presentation. Very much characteristic of the sort of small box uh, representation. But I absolutely love Crash Octopus. It is my favorite of the Japanese dexterity games, and it is certainly my favorite of the output of Iten, the Japanese publisher.
1: And because the boats are the boats are fairly large, and you're and they're moving around, and you're you're sort of like. Junk collectors, I guess you could say, because the the table is littered (laughs) with with these, you know, goblets. It's supposed to be treasure. It's supposed to be treasure.
2: And your captain that went overboard, but but you can call him junk if you want
1: to. It's the fact that everyone's boat looks so different once the game gets going, (laughs) because everyone's stacking these pieces differently on their boats, and I think it's just... Very interesting to watch.
2: It's a shame it doesn't have a more wide distribution in North America. You have to buy it at import prices, and that's a bit of a shame, but I'm absolutely glad that I finally got my own copy of Crash Octopus. It is very, very fast. If anything, I think it's too fast. One of the things that I'm I'm toying with, again, a variant to allow more movement might prolong the game by as much as all of five minutes, on top of its 30-minute run time as it is. Oh, that's way too long. I know, I know. Crash Octopus by Naotaka Shimamoto and Itten.
1: Those are the games we played this week. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. On the topic of Itten and
2: Japanese dexterity games, the Funbrick series by Itten is going to hit crowdfunding soon. It involves five highly portable, highly delightful, highly cute Itten dexterity games. Two of those five, Walker, are designed by Reiner Knizia. Reiner Knizia has designed, to the best of my understanding, one or two dexterity games before this, but it's not really a genre he's done much in. One of them is most uh, one of them in the Funbrick series by Itten is mostly about balancing, so it's not so much about dexterity and more about estimation of weight and risk taking in that sense. But another one is about ninjas, and I for one am curious to see what happens when Reiner Knizia designs a dexterity game about ninjas. This will be hitting crowdfunding soon. It is called the
1: Funbrick series by Itten. Speaking of crowdfunding, Queen's Dilemma is when you hear this, which should be up on Kickstarter, and it's going to be a very cheap Kickstarter this time, Mark. I know. You you could not afford not to buy it. Six. Like, get the six pack. I think
2: that's your best value. It's only 130 euros. Right. I mean, that's, that's cheap at twice the price. Yeah, I know.
1: Like, what, is the, what is that? I don't know. Is that? is that just because they know they can get it or i don't know is there so much more in in this package? Look, they're a
2: relatively small pub I, I don't know i don't know they're a relatively small publisher there's been a lot of inflation maybe they're trying to future proof it they see a lot of people taking a bath on crowdfunding oh, look if i had to crowdfund something you know, from about eight months ago to, you know, a year from now, I would have no idea how to price anything. Is shipping going to cost tw- $20 or is it going to cost $90? Who's to say? If you guess wrong, you could you could lose your shirt.
1: I have no idea. And it's I'm just, not defending it. I'm no, just no. saying. And it's the fact that it's the standard pledge. Like usually I can see that right. huge price when, you know, you're getting the, you know, the deluxe and the add-ons. This is just the lowest standard price. Yeah. Base game is 130 euros. Yeah.
2: The terrible thing is, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pledge for it. Yes. I had such a good time with the King's Dilemma. The Queen's Dilemma promises to be somewhat different, have more of a map presence and sort of an area majority area control vibe. But the quality of the writing, the quality of the world building, the quality of the narrative, and the involvement of the players in the narrative, the sense of ownership that you had over the events of the game, completely unparalleled in the realm of interactive fiction. And I include that in video games as well. That world belonged to the players. We did those things. And so if the Queen's Dilemma is able to deliver on that again, I think it'll be money well spent. That having been said, yes, it's a lot of money.
1: Agreed. Let's stay on crowdfunding, Mark. Let's now talk about Spirit Island Nature Incarnate. This is the new expansion coming out for Spirit Island. It is now on Backerlit. Backer Kit. Backer, Backer Kit. But it'd be lit, yo. And uh, they've done something very interesting. It's a time. novel approach. Yeah, you, you, no stretch goals this time. Instead, just the, the project itself is is stretch goals. <laughs> just 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 give us your money. Yeah, we'll let you know in small increments what you what you've paid for. Yeah, but but we're not going to tell you what you're actually giving us the money for.
2: Honestly, there are a lot of there's a lot of speculation about how it shook out this way. There's some claims about BackerKit wanting to test out a new rollout format. There are claims about community involvement. There's claims about well, you need to maintain engagement throughout the entirety of the campaign, not just at the beginning of the end. Ultimately, though, and I'm not saying this is an ad hominem, I'm saying as a consumer, it looks like arrogance. When I first logged on and I saw the, the, the project page as it was, it really did look to me as though someone was just like, well, we'll just put Spirit Island on the page and you'll throw money at the screen, so what else do we have to do? I'm not saying that was the intent of anyone involved, but it really, really turned me off. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. Myself. It was, it's, it's, it's quite shocking. People have reacted very badly, even people who are pledging. On top of that, the pledge tiers are bizarre. Everyone's getting the foil spirits, whether they want them or not, where, be, even though the foil spirits are a strange sort of sideways, not necessarily upgrade, not downgrade from the existing thing. There's the whole issue about how there are no Kickstarter exclusives and we know that these prices are significantly inflated from retail. Honestly, as a Canadian consumer, uh, I don't think there's any reason for a Canadian to pledge for this. The only reason why I'm pledging for this is because I know that I have an American box and I can probably get this before retail. But if I were a Canadian, I wouldn't be able to get this through, uh, through retail. Or, or at least let me put it a different way. I would have no reason to believe that I could get it before retail.
1: So just to be clear, not like a, not a, a U.S. Uh, Spirit Island box, he means a U.S. Postal <laughs> Shipping box. box.
2: I have a US, U.S. postal box and I can get it delivered there. Look, reliably, Canadian Kickstarters get fulfilled a couple weeks after the American ones, and reliably, they show up in retail before they show up... In backers' hands. Similarly, I'm still waiting on my John Company Second Edition. We have many listeners reaching out, very curious about how I feel about John Company Second Edition. I will let you know the moment I even get so much as a shipping notification for John Company Second Edition. Because screw you, Canada. Anyway, setting that aside, but no, the 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 prices on this on this backer kit retail uh, well retail advanced crowdfunded version are real high, and when you know you can get it retail at a discount, and there are no exclusives, ain't no reason to pledge aside from the hope of early access, which people outside the U.S. probably won't have anyway.
1: Well, that game's garbage, you shouldn't pledge anyway, but sure, whatever. No, no,
2: <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> Look, and, and to a certain extent, they're
2: right. I mean, it may be callous to assume that you can just say this is the more Spirit Island and expect people to roll in with their money, but people have hundreds of thousands of dollars worth. Yeah, it is funded. Yeah. Honestly, like the the, the 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 smartest thing Greater Than Games ever did was sign Eric Royce. Seriously. Yep. Similarly, on the topic of crowdfunding campaigns that are mysterious, the new HeroScape, it's not going well. The Kickstarter page, we haven't done a Pledge of Indifference in some time because we've had other obligations, so consider this a mini Pledge of Indifference. The initial pledge level was just the $250, as we've talked about, with precious little information
1: on the crowdfunding page. It wasn't Kickstarter, though. I just want to make sure we're clear.
2: Right. Sorry. Yes. Thank you. Still crowdfunding. It's the proprietary Hasbro Kickstarter HasLab. And as it stands, it does not look like it's going to fund. Which is a shame. It really, it really does look like again they're like, "Yeah, HeroScape. You'll either pay for us if you don't." And when your company is big as Hasbro, you can get away with that because if this HeroScape campaign doesn't fund,
1: ain't no skin off their back. <laughs> well, they did. They have done a little bit of, you know. Preemptive 3D, you know, working and oh and sure, stuff. But a
2: drop in the bucket when oh, you're sure. a multi-million dollar corporation like this.
1: It's not to say that they're not going to return to it at some other time as well. Ah, uh, who's to say? I who's don't know. This, the, if you if you put in some of that work
2: and it doesn't pay off, corporate logic doesn't encourage you to go back and try again. I don't know. I'm a little disappointed. I think with a slightly different. Uh, arrangement they've they've tried to recover very much in the same way that the spirit Island campaign is trying to s- somewhat course correct but in the context of Heroescape they put up new information they put up gameplay videos a little late they might have missed their window I find it disappointing
0: they just
1: needed different tiers
2: they just didn't need the one giant that certainly uh, that certainly I think is one of the things that might have helped
1: Mark I'm really enjoying the GI Joe deck building game they've already had one expansion they've already announced another expansion this is going to be cold snap. This is a game by Renegade Games, so just more stuff. The latest expansion was the big command center, and you did stuff at the command center. This is going to be more of the same sort of thing, a different different, uh, mechanism that they're going to bring in. So more cards, more stuff. I'm all in for the G.I. Joe deck-building game.
2: Sad news, we now have zero Sadler Brothers in professional game design. Adam Sadler left Professional Game Design some time ago for software development, and now Brady Sadler has announced that he is no longer going to be working with Lucky Duck Games. He is out of Professional Game Design as well. And this is just further sad news from the continuing dissolution of Blacklist Games. They used to be solid. I released uh, an hour-long episode of So Very Wrong About All the Games You Like Are Bad, about the modular deck system games, about how they were really going in in several ways from strength to strength until they, they kind of lost their rhythm. And suffice to say that we now have zero Saddlers, and so the fate of the modular deck system, if there's ever going to be more games of that, not going to be designed by them. And so I, for one, have zero interest. But they were quality designers who did good work, and it's a bit of a shame that they're no longer working in the industry.
1: So we're often asked why we don't do sort of like Kickstarter previews, and I've talked about it before where... Where when you put your name to a Kickstarter project and, and it goes awry and now you're sort of saddled in. So this happened. I'm not going to name any names or, or even what the project is, but there's accusations of a, a game being stolen. A, a play tester that was with this designer suddenly put up a Kickstarter of the exact game that, that they play tested and, and all of these creators were hired to do all of all of these previews and gameplays and how to videos and now they're all associated with this project and then now the accusations fly in and then suddenly he cancels the pledge and says well you know for reasons I need to cancel this pledge oof that is why because there's is, there is when these kickstarters have have new people and we don't know who they are we tend not to want to saddle up finally October 27th is Arkhipov Day, the 60th
2: anniversary of the day in October of 1962, when Vasily Arkhipov saved the entire world. I've been talking about this the past few weeks, and honestly, I have to say, it's depressing that it's so relevant. It's also really depressing that I find this kind of go-along-to-get-along conservatism, the failure to gum up the works in the right way, which is exactly what Vasily Arkhipov did, is so prevalent in a lot of political contexts, especially in Canada. That's the kind of toxic conservatism that I was talking about when I was uh, talking about in Shucks, the polite desire to have the system work smoothly, and the desire not to m- make noise, the desire not to get in the way, especially when you know that the process is noxious. And not to generalize too far politically, but really, we need more people like Vasily Arkhipov who take seriously the responsibility towards power, and it's a good thing we did have a Vasily Arkubov who was willing to, no pun intended, torpedo his entire career to save the human race. So if on October 27th you can at least cast a thought, maybe wish someone a happy Va- Arkhipov Day, try to spread the word, or at least spend some time thinking about what power you have and how you can use it to better the world, that would be, I think, a good way to spend it. So that is the news and why sometimes it doesn't matter. Thank you very much for being with us. That's all we've got time for here today on So Very Wrong About Games. Peace! No. That, <laughs> <laughs> that was a premature peace wait, walker. Wait, wait, wait. So- you looked at me like I was supposed to... No, 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 no. Put it back in your holster. Okay. Put it back in your holster. Oh, <laughs> oh. Okay. <You're> like- <laughs> Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our <laughs> contact information at SoWrongGames.com slash contact. We read everything... No, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Just a minute, Walker. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thank you for being with us, and we'll see you again soon.
1: Now? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced (laughs) by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Biggin. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at WhatDoesItEat.com. You can reach us by email at SoVeryWrongAboutGames at gmail.com or on Twitter at SoWrongGames. Thanks very much. See you next time and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.